as I've shared at different times, um, I grew up in Roman Catholicism. I went to Catholic school, all that, but never really taught the gospel during that. Um, but my, but God saved my dad from that, and He moved us to a church that was preaching the gospel. Shortly after, my mom trusted in Christ, and she was actually baptized in the same day as my dad. Very close after that, my older sister Amanda and my younger sister Amanda trusted in Christ, and then there was me. <laughs> I was the last one in our family to trust in Christ. Time passed, and my older sister went to a Christian college in Iowa. And then I graduated and went to a, a small school up in northern Wisconsin, met Casey. Um, and then we moved eventually here to Oak Hills. And before we graduated, my older sister, Amanda, graduated from college in Iowa, and she moved up to Denver, Colorado. We eventually graduated, moved back to Wisconsin just to help out with my mom's health. And it's at that time, my older sister Amanda made it known to us that she's now a lesbian, that she renounces the Christian faith. She has turned away from the faith. So it's been about four years now of her kind of adamant, opposition to Christianity. And on a human level, there doesn't seem to be any kind of sight in the future, in the near future, that she'll turn back. She professed faith in Christ in high school. She went to youth group. She brought friends to youth group. She went to Bible study. She was baptized. She did all that. But she turned back. She turned away from the faith. And these past four years, there's always those questions that swirl in my mind. Is my sister a genuine believer who has fallen back the last almost half a decade? Or is my sister a false convert and that her life now is just reflecting that and that she's still on her road to hell? I am sure there are some in this room who are in a similar situation. Maybe you have a family member, maybe a friend, Maybe someone in our church family that we know of that was following Christ and now they turned back. And I'm sure there are concerned parents and grandparents here that look at the dreadful statistics of teens raised in evangelical homes that turn away from the faith, that the majority turn away from the faith after the, their first year in college. And you, like me, do not want that to happen to our, our kids. Our grandkids, Sawyer, your kids, the kids in our church family, we do not want that. We want them to have genuine faith. In our passage today, these questions are swirling in Paul's mind. They're swirling. He's, he's, he's perplexed, he says at the end, what is going on? So today, as we go through our passage, I want us to see two things. Number one, I want us to hear Paul's tender plea for the Galatians to turn back to the gospel, his tender plea to turn back. And number two, I want us to consider the nature of genuine faith, as we'll see Paul kind of bring this up throughout this passage. And we'll do this in five parts. And I want us to uh, first, um, as we were about to dive into this, Paul, as we kind of heard, as the elders have, have read, up to this point, Paul has been like almost like a lawyer. 
He has given them evidence after evidence after evidence and support about this is the gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this is the gospel. He looked at Abraham. He looked at the law, the purpose of the law. He looked at history with the, the apostles. He looked at him receiving the gospel. He goes through all that. And then at this point, it seems like he turns. It's a lot more personal. It's him almost pleading, please, come back to the faith. Why are you turning back? So let's consider those five points of his plea and the nature of genuine faith. So that first point is this. Genuine faith struggles, but it does not ultimately turn back. Genuine faith struggles, but it does not ultimately turn back. Verse 8, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so Paul reminds the Galatians, remember where we came from. Before Christ, before I preached the gospel to you, Paul says, you guys were enslaved to these idols. Literally, in that, in that context, they were worshiping false idols, wooden carved images. He says, before you trust in Christ, you worship these idols that were not even gods. Think of your story. What were you enslaved to before you knew Christ? I know for me, one of my idols was seeking pleasure at almost any cost. That was one of my idols. I was enslaved to that. That's what I worshipped. Maybe for you, it was, it was a little different. Um, wealth, popularity, career, the American dream, all could be idols. But we, like the Galatians, were enslaved to these things before we knew Christ. And so Paul, he reminds them from where they came from. You, before Christ, were enslaved to these idols, these, these things that were not even gods. Verse 9, he goes on. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He says, you guys, you were enslaved to sin. You were enslaved to death. You were enslaved to worldliness and idols. You were a slave. But then you were adopted in Christ. Like we saw last week, the passage. You were adopted into God's family. You came to know God, or in other words, God came to know you. All of that. And now you're turning back? You're leaving? You're turning back? You want to be slaves once more? It makes absolutely no sense. And Paul is saying that. He's bewildered. Why are you turning back? So we hear Paul's cry. Why? Are you turning back? He's hurt. There's doubt. There's confusion. Let me highlight some points that uh, we heard as A.G. Bob and Keith were reading. You can hear this bewilderment all throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Astonished you are leaving him so quickly. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In our passage, verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid 
I've labored over you in vain. I'm afraid that this was all a waste of my time. Verse 20, he says, that he ends that passage, I am perplexed. I am confused, no idea. Chapter 5, Paul will go on to say that those who are trying to be justified by the law, he says, they're severed from Christ. And he says, they have fallen away from grace. So Paul asks, how can you turn back? What's interesting is that word, that phrase, turn back, is almost almost always in the New Testament referring to people turning from sin, turning from idols to Christ. Almost always. It's, refer- it's used that way. Paul uses it in the opposite sense in this word. He says, turning from Christ back to these idols, back to the sin, back to this enslavement. He says, how can you turn back? And when we talk about this, the turning back, uh, think of the situation with my sister or someone you know. The question comes up. Have they lost their salvation? If not, how do we understand this? If you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And the reason we turn there is because John is writing to his, 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 the recipients of the letter, and they're in a very similar situation. False teachers ravaged that church, completely ravaged it, so much so that some in the church left, abandoned the faith, and followed the false teachers. And so it's kind of like, how do we understand this, John? What is going on? And then John, in one verse, chapter 2, verse 19, he kind of explains it this way. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 19, he says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what is he saying? Those that left, those that turned back, those who abandoned the faith, they were not of us, he says. Because if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they abandoned the faith, and it's clear that they were never of us. And so meaning, those that ultimately turned back, those that abandoned the faith, were never of us. They never had genuine faith in the first place, he says. They were never of us. It became clear that they were never of us because they left us. Because if they were of us, they would have continued with us. So genuine faith will not ultimately turn back. It will not. This does not mean that it will be perfect because it will have struggles. And I'm sure all of us in this room can testify to that. We struggle. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with the, the pull of the culture. We struggle with all these different things. We struggle with pride, selfishness, or at least that's just me. But I'm certain that each of us can name at least two or three sins that just give us trouble, daily if not weekly. So genuine faith struggles, but it does not ultimately turn back. It will not abandon the faith. But it does seem that there are some that struggle longer, that have longer periods of struggling. Like we can see in the church um, of Corinth. They were messed up. So much so that even the culture is like, what is going on in that church? They struggled. And they had long periods of struggle. And some refer to, to Christians who struggle with this as they've backslidden. That for a time they don't grow, 
And they're kind of set back by their sin. Or as one pastor describes it, they regress into a period of spiritual dullness or disobedience. This longer period of sin of a genuine believer. But how long can this go for until it's recognized, okay, like it's been four years in the case of my sister. Can we write her off if I can use that word in the sense that she was never a genuine believer in the first place. That issue is very relevant in all of our lives. But that question is not relevant at all. The question of, well, are they a genuine believer who's struggling for a long time? Or are they, are they really a false convert and it's showing up right now? That question's not relevant. And this is the reason why. Because in either case, our approach is the same. It's to call them to repentance and faith. For the backsliding Christian who has genuine faith, it's to call them to repent and to continue in their faith in Christ. To the false convert, it's to repent and trust in Christ for the first time. Either way, the approach is the same. Repent and trust in Christ. Repent and trust in Christ. So Paul sees the Galatians. They see what's going on. He sees us. Or at least he hears about it. And he cries, why are you turning back? Why are you turning back? So the first point is that genuine faith struggles, but it will not ultimately turn back. That's point one. Point two we see here, and it's a natural follow-up to this first point, is that genuine faith starts well and it ends well. In other words, genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith perseveres. It struggles but it will persevere. Uh, verse 13, or actually verse 13 through 16, Paul, he, he shares how the believers started well. They responded incredibly to Paul. Verse 13, you know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So this given us insight that he went to the region of Galatia for some reason that he was sick, and that's why he went there. Verse 14 tells us a little more. He goes on, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So from this, we understand that the body ailment, whatever it was, was actually a trial to the Galatians. Now keep in mind that this was kind of this was ancient times. They didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have sterile bandages. And so when someone got sick or a disease, it was gross. It left people disfigured. It left a nauseating stench. So that could be what, what Paul is talking about here, that, hey, you didn't despise me or scorn me. On top of that, at that time, people usually saw physical issues as divine judgment. Um, if you recall, there was one time where Jesus and the disciples were walking, and there was a blind man, and the disciples were thinking, well, did he sin, and that's the reason, or was it the parents that sinned? Because it has to be some kind of divine judgment. And so a lot of times people despise those who are physically sick or have some kind of issue because they think it's a divine judgment. But Paul says that's not all what the Galatians did. They did the complete opposite. They received him as a messenger of God. They received him incredibly and warmly, even though he had this body issue, whatever it is. So they started well. Verse 15, he goes on. What then? has become of your blessedness. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and give them to me. Anyone feel like up to gouging out their own eyes and give them to me? Anyone? 
No, that's sick. But Paul, there's uh, two things from this. Number one, it could be a, a clue to what the issue is, that it was something wrong with Paul's eyes, and that's why he says that phrase. Um, like some commentators say that malaria sometimes affects the optic nerve. It can mess with the eyes. Possibly. Or Paul's just saying it to emphasize, you guys would have done anything for me. You would have sacrificed anything. Either way, the Galatians started off so well. You can almost see evidence of the Spirit's work among them. They started off so well. Paul asks, what has become of this? What happened? What happened? Verse 10, he says, shall we back? He says, you observe days and months and season and years. Referring to the Jewish calendar with all the festivals, the Sabbath, all that. He says, you're going back to that. The evidence now shows that you're turning back. Why are you turning back? What happened? Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You're turning back so much so that are you viewing me as the enemy? That I'm the one sharing the true gospel? What has happened? So Paul cries out, you started well. What happened? Because right now it does not look like you're persevering at all. He's concerned that they're not persevering because genuine faith starts well, it ends well, it perseveres. A faith that does not persevere is not genuine faith. If you remember in 1 John 2, that verse, he says, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So this emphasis on perseverance. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. You may recall uh, another parable that Jesus, Jesus uh, talks about is the four soils, right? So in the parable, you got the four soils. They represent four different hearts or conditions of people's hearts. Uh, then you got the, the seed that the sower's thrown out, and the seed represents the word of God. One of the soils is the, the path, right? Very hard path. Throws out seed and quickly is getting eaten by birds and it's gone, right? But it's interesting that these other three soils, each case of them, there's some growth. There is some, but only one has fruit. And that's the good soil. These other two soils, let's look at those. Number one is the rocky soil. Seed gets thrown out there. It sprouts up, but then it withers. And Jesus, when he explains this, he says they receive, these are the people who receive the truth with joy. There's passion. There's quite an experience. They love Jesus. But hard times come and they fall away, Jesus says. And then the thorny soil also represents one who receives the word with passion. There's growth. But then Jesus says, the cares of this world chokes it out. And so the point is that genuine faith, it perseveres. It perseveres. It does not fall away in hard times. It does not fall away in the face of the cares and attractions of the world. It perseveres. So Paul is concerned because he sees the Galatians and it seems like they're not persevering. They're not ending well. They started so well, what is going on? What has happened? As one pastor says, 
Faith that fades, no matter how luscious its first fruits, is not saving faith. Faith that fades is not saving or genuine faith. You cannot lose your salvation. God will keep all those who are his children. But faith always endures to the end. You might be familiar with the phrase, um, once saved, always saved. Right? Have you heard that phrase? Which is true. You are secure in Christ. Um, As one pastor says, uh, maybe a better description of this whole process in the believer's life is the phrase, once saved, always persevering. Once saved, always persevering. Because a person who is saved will persevere. There will be perseverance. Out of this, I want to point out two points, two sub-points. Number one is this. The evidence of our salvation is not about a past event, but about perseverance in the faith. It's not about a past event or perseverance in the faith. It's not about gaining assurance by pointing at a specific date in the past, which many of us could do that. But it's not about that. It's about our current posture towards Christ. Do you right now have a posture of repentance and faith towards Christ? Because if so, you're persevering. As uh, Pastor J.D. Greer says this, he writes, Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith towards Christ that you adopt at your conversion and maintain for a lifetime. You persevere in this posture towards Christ. So the evidence and the assurance of your salvation is persevering in this posture of repentance and faith towards Christ. Number two, the second point that's really close is this, is that all those who have prayed a prayer, all those who have made a decision for Christ, all those who have had a spiritual, emotional experience of fire, of passion, does not securely indicate that you have been saved from your sin. In the parable of the soils, the rocky soil, there was great joy. There was great passion immediately, it says. Immediately there was great passion. But it falls away in hard times. I'm not saying that one can't get saved. That Not at all. But it's not about that experience. It's about the posture of repentance and faith. Have that person at that time had repentance and faith. So Paul is concerned about the Galatians because it seems that they are struggling to persevere. They are turning back. Genuine faith starts well and ends well. It will persevere. It will struggle, as we see, but it will not ultimately turn back. And that brings us to this third point, is that genuine faith will have resistance. Genuine faith will have resistance. Verse 17 Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So he's referred to the false teachers. They were making much of the Galatians. But Paul says, for no good purpose at all. Uh, This phrase, making much of, it actually, uh, the picture behind it that was common in that day was taking a serious interest in a person and very commonly used of a man dating a woman. Making much of. And so it says Paul, it's as if Paul is saying that the false teachers, they talk as if they really care about you, but they're false suitors. They're not for your good. 
They are not for your good. They talk. They have talk a very good talk. But they are not for your good. And I couldn't help but think about our culture. Our, our, our current culture in America. Where there's talk. There's words like love. There's words like tolerance. There's words like acceptance. There's words like be true to yourself. There's this image that the culture is the voice of truth, as if the culture is the light of the darkness. It's the culture that's defending the oppressed. It's a culture that really cares, but is full of nothing but damning lies. The culture is not for your good. As Paul says, they're a false suitor. They're making much of you, but for no good purpose. And we see that Paul's teaching is not the only resistance to faith will have. There will be trials that will test your faith. There'll be temptation after temptation from the world, Satan, your flesh. There'll be suffering, there'll be persecution. The rocky soil experienced resistance in persecution and suffering. The thorny soil experienced resistance in the form of temptation and the cares of the world. Either way, genuine faith does not give in to this resistance. It perseveres. Paul continues, verse 18. It's always it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. So what Paul's doing is he's contrasting here. The false teachers, they are not for your good. But I was. He says, I, when I came, it's good to be make, make, made much of for a good purpose. When Paul came, he wasn't there to, to make them feel good. He was there to preach the gospel. He cared about their souls. And so he preached the gospel. He doesn't care about the, the, the Galatians' admiration. He cares about their souls, the condition of their souls, because the false teachers were threatening them. And so Paul says, they're out not for your good. So Paul's cry is, the false teachers are not out for your good, but I am. So genuine faith will experience resistance. Genuine faith struggles, but genuine faith perseveres. It perseveres. It starts well, and it will end well. It will not ultimately turn back. Fourth point. Genuine faith grows in Christ-likeness. Verse 19. Uh, I look how Paul ends this. I, I feel the woman will have a little more sense of this than the guys. Verse 19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, My little children. I remember Paul is the one who planted these churches. Very likely that Paul, he led a lot of them to Christ. He knows their families. He knows their stories. He knows them. He served with them. He has an intimate relationship with them. And he pleads to them like a parent to wayward children. My little children. And then the picture that he gives here. He says... He is in again for a second time in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And the picture here is of a woman who has to give birth, go through the whole labor process a second time for the same child. Go through the whole labor process twice for the same child. Abnormal and unnatural is probably two words that would be very easy to describe then. But Paul says, it's as if Paul is saying, you've already experienced a new birth. But now you're acting as if you need to be spiritually born again all over again. And you make me feel like a mother. 
who has to deliver the same baby twice. And he says, so that Christ is formed in you. This growth in Christ-likeness is the natural evidence or the natural outcome of genuine faith. It's evidence of persevering faith. So Paul longs for his anxiety over the condition of the Galatians to end. And he says, that will end once I see that you're growing and you're becoming in Christ, that you're being formed into Christ. But Paul is basically saying, no matter how messed up it is that I have to go through this again, I'm not abandoning you. I'm going through this until Christ is formed in you. And so genuine faith grows in Christ-likeness and matures. And then verse 20, the end of this, kind of the summary, Paul says, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And that word is basically what you think it means. He's in doubt. He's at his wits end. He has no idea what to do. He's uncertain how else to go about this. I'm, I'm perplexed. I am bewildered. I have no idea what's going on. I feel like I'm going to childbirth a second time. You so quickly abandon Jesus Christ. You so quickly abandon the gospel. It seems like you're turning back. I feel like I've ran in vain. I am perplexed. And Paul is concerned. Why am I working a second time towards your childbirth? Your spiritual birth? Genuine faith struggles. It experiences resistance. But it will persevere. It will not turn back. It will not ultimately turn back. And it will show fruit of maturity in Christ-likeness. And Paul is perplexed because he looks at the Galatians and he's not seeing that. He's seeing the opposite. They're turning back. And that brings us to the last point. Number five is the cry to those who are turning back. Paul's cry to those who are turning back. Verse 11. I am afraid I have, made, have labored over you in vain. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The current state, the current actions of the Galatians renders Paul perplexed. And he's afraid it was all for a waste. I don't know where my sister is, and I'm afraid. I don't know where she's at. You may not know where your child or grandchild, and you might see their actions, and you're afraid. What does this mean? What does this mean? And Paul fears it was all for a waste. If the Galatians do not persevere, according to, to God's word of 1 John, they were never Christians in the first place. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Can you imagine some the person who is whoever it is who has invested in your life so much has saying that to you? Hey, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. I've wasted my time with you. This type of warning by Paul is not meant to guilt or shame the Galatians. But it is definitely designed to awaken the Galatians from their spiritual authority and complacency and to call them back to the gospel. And we see these warnings all throughout the New Testament. Let me give you just a few here. In Acts 13, 43, Luke records this. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, 
many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Persevere, is what Paul and Barnabas said. When you turn to Christ, they said, persevere, continue in the grace of God. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul writes this, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Same kind of phrase he uses here with the Galatians. In fact, he says it almost exactly to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. Romans 11.22, Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Provided you continue in his kindness. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the last one, Matthew 10, verse 22, from Jesus' mouth himself, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when you hear that, initially it might be, oh my, oh my, literally, oh my God, does this mean I can lose my salvation, Lord? And that's not the case. God's word makes it very clear he will not lose any of his children. But these warnings of falling away and these warnings to persevere are the means by which God renders it certain that the saved individual will not fall away. Let me say that one more time. These warnings of falling away and of persevering are the means by which God renders it certain that the saved individual will not fall away. And I want to give this, this illustration that I read. Uh, a theologian gave it, and it's wonderful. I think it does a very good job of explaining this. So imagine you're a parent. Maybe you are a parent. <laughs> you're a parent, right? And you don't want, I assume, you don't want your kid running to the street and getting run over, right? Is that a pretty easy assumption, right? AJ says I'm not really sure some days, but I'm just kidding. But yes, so you don't want our kids running to the road. So there's kind of two ways you can go about this. Number one, you could throw up a fence, and so they literally cannot escape, right? Number two, what you could do is you could teach your children about the dangers of going into the road. You could teach them what's going to happen if they go into the road. And that's exactly what God does here with these warnings. He teaches us, hey, if you lose yourself, uh, let me rephrase it, if you abandon the faith, it just shows that you're never a Christian in the first place. If you do not persevere, you have turned back from the faith and you are not a Christian in the first place. And so God does the same thing with the warnings. This is what happens when you go into the street. And it's his means, the warnings, to make sure that we do persevere. One pastor says this. These warnings ought to be taken at face value. If we fall away, we will not be saved in the end. But since those who are truly saved can never lose it, we must conclude that a failure to heed the warnings demonstrates that we never possess true saving faith to begin with. So these warnings are not meant to discourage you 
or to cause you to worry if you're currently trusting Christ. That's not the, the meaning or the purpose of the warnings. Rather, the purpose of the warnings is given to warn those who are falling away, those who are thinking of falling away, of turning back. It's a warning to them that this is what this means if you do. So Paul gives the Galatians this warning. And then he cries out, verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did no wrong to me. And look at this. This is the first time in the whole letter up to this point that there's a command. The first time there's an imperative. We're halfway through the, the letter. The first time it, he says, become as I am, for I become as you are. What does he mean by that? Paul at one point was a very devout Jew. He followed the law in hopes that that's how he would receive righteousness and life. But God opened his eyes and it was not by the law that you there's life or righteousness. It's through Christ alone. So he, he turned from that and he turned into Christ. In effect, he became like a, 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 um, a Gentile because he no longer followed the law. He didn't have to. That's not where life is. And so he became like the, the Galatians in that way. Basically, Paul is begging them to confess again that your salvation is not by keeping the law. Your salvation is not by doing these things, but it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's begging them. He even says, I entreat you, please, come back. I fear my labor over you was in vain. Stop turning back and come back to the faith. This past week I was reading in, in Genesis um, the account when God sent angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you recall, so the angels go in, very mercifully, mercifully um, tells Lot, hey, we're about to destroy this place. Get your wife, get everyone else in your family, and get out of here. It takes some time, but they eventually leave. And, but the angels tell them, do not look back. Do not look back. And as they're going out, the account says that Lot's wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt. Can you imagine losing a family member that way? But I am almost certain that if Lot saw his wife starting to turn back, he would have screamed, do not turn back. Don't turn back. Don't do it. Do not turn back, honey. Don't do it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. So genuine faith, it will struggle. It will experience resistance. But it will not turn back. It will persevere. And Paul's cry is, do not turn back. Persevere in the faith. As we talked about this, perhaps there's a specific person you thought of. A family member, a friend, someone who used to be part of our church. And keep this in mind is a wisdom from a pastor. He says this. The purpose of these warnings is not to help us diagnose stubborn people so that we stop praying for them. Rather, the purpose of these warnings are to feel the urgency of the situation so that we pray even more persistently for these people. Don't stop praying, he says. These warnings are not to say, oh, just write them off. 
but to pray even more for them. So maybe there are some that we know, maybe some in this room, who are turning back, who are thinking of turning back. Or maybe there's some who have just not been striving to persevere, who have not been warring with sin, or have been complacent in a certain area of their lives, or been just sees growing Christ, sees striving to grow in Christ in a certain area. And if that's you, and that's certainly me in different areas of my life, Paul calls out, repent and trust in Christ. Repent and continue believing. Repent and continue believing. Turn back to the faith in whatever area that looks like. So as a Christian, God tells us, persevere. There will be resistance. You will struggle, but do not turn back. Because turning back shows that you were never a genuine Christian in the first place. Do not turn back. And Jesus says again, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Father, as we look at your word, as we hear this kind of heavy message, Lord, may we receive this, God, as a, a warning from love. That you're not out there to guilt us or shame us, but you're calling us to continue. You're calling us to persevere, Lord, because you do love us. Father, we, uh, as believers, are gracious that you will never lose us. We are gracious that we are secure in Christ. And we're gracious that you care about us. Lord, in the areas that we have not been really persevering, Lord, may you give us grace to repent and to turn to you in these areas, God. And Lord, we think about that family member, that friend, who has turned away, Lord. I think of my sister Amanda, and Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would work in their lives, God. Amen.